Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's care. And we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about a very common issue that affects millions of older adults, and that is hearing impairment and hearing loss. Our special guest to help us with this topic is Professor Meg Walhagen, PhD, who is a professor of gerontological nursing at UCSF School of Nursing. She is a nationally recognized expert on hearing loss, and over the course of her career, she's been involved in research, in advocacy, and in lots of education related to this important topic. She has also been on the board of the Hearing Loss Association of America since 2010 and is actually the immediate past chairperson of their board. Since I know so many older adults and families have concerns about hearing loss and questions about what can be done, I'm just delighted that Professor Walhagen was able to join us today on the podcast. And in fact, since this is a pretty big topic and she is so knowledgeable about it, she agreed to do a two-part interview that we'll be sharing in two back-to-back episodes. So today, in part one, we're going to focus on what to know about hearing loss and how it should be assessed. And then in part two, we'll focus on what can be done about hearing loss, including what to know about hearing aids and other options for managing this issue. Meg, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really pleased to be here and to share information on hearing loss, which, as you know, is a passionate interest of mine. Yes. So I always love to start by inviting our guests to share a little bit about their background. And I think you may be the first geriatric uh, nurse or gerontological nursing professor that we've had. So this is also a great opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about this profession. But tell us, how did you become interested in geriatric nursing and What was your career like, and how did you end up developing this focus on hearing loss? Well, really and truly, it evolved. Uh, I have to say that I started out as a three-year diploma graduate uh, many years ago now, and sort of went the long way to get back and get my BS and then master's and finally my doctorate at the University of Washington. But it was my interest in hearing loss sort of evolved, and in geriatrics. I mean, I became very interested in care of older adults and uh, chronic illness management right before I went to Seattle and to work on my doctorate at the University of Washington. Uh, I had worked with uh, in acute care mainly up to that time and taught at California State University Chico. But uh, I realized that there was certainly a growing number of older adults and the issues around management of chronic illness was of major concern to me and how various kinds of policies affected the way in which we could manage conditions that older adults and their families were experiencing. So that's kind of how I got interested in geriatrics. Yeah. So really quickly, maybe you can explain a little bit to the audience what it means to get a doctorate in nursing, because I think that's actually not something that everybody understands. 
Right. Well, you know, it's a very interesting question because the, the PhD that I got is sort of focused on research. Um, but of course, it comes from the research that we do, especially in nursing, focused on clinical, practical clinical issues that we see as important to deal with. Because as nurses, we're really interested, again, in uh, managing the family and the older person and how you live with various kinds of conditions, not just a cure basis. So there are different sort of, I, I don't want to call it levels, but different educational experiences that people have related to their doctorate. And you can get, um, normally now there's not many diploma programs, but most of them are baccalaureate or uh, now we're moving more and more toward masters. And then there's two different kinds of doctorates one which is more like a medical doctor that's called the Doctor of Nursing Practice, the DNP. And then there's the PhD, which is a little bit more of an academic type of uh, doctorate, which focuses on not just the practical, but the teaching academic mission and also doing a lot of research. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like with this focus on the person and the family and how people live, that's kind of a naturally a good fit with the healthcare of older adults. Oh, yes, it definitely is. So it's our sort of special secret in geriatrics, but it sounds like it's something that the uh, nursing profession is, you know, by nature already more oriented towards. Right. That's that's true. So now hearing loss. Yes. Tell us how you became uh, interested in hearing loss in particular. Well, again, that was really an evolution, which I'm excited now that it, I moved in that direction. But it, it evolved after I finished my doctoral study and came down to the University of California in San Francisco. I was really became increasingly interested in the impact that hearing loss had on older adults and the impact that practitioners, uh, the fact that practitioners really didn't know a lot about hearing loss or pay attention to it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I went back to some of the books and I would read that, uh, oh, make sure their hearing aids are in place. So I started asking colleagues if they knew what that meant and how to work with hearing aids and they really didn't. So realizing the impact of hearing loss and what the data is, showed in terms of the ways in which uh, hearing loss affected older adults, both in the clinical setting, but also certainly with their families, uh, I became really interested in focusing on that in terms of making a difference, if I could, uh, in terms of access and in terms of training or educating practitioners about its importance. And I also became very aware, uh, because I was interested in policy, that Medicare, the fact that Medicare does not cover hearing health care or hearing aids really was a barrier to care of older adults in this particular setting uh, because it sort of dictates so much of what other insurance companies do. Uh, so as I say, that's sort of started my journey. That's so interesting. And now so many people also have personal experiences with hearing loss, and that sometimes drives them to start to, to study an issue. Did you have any personal experience for yourself or in your family with hearing loss? No, not not directly. I mean, looking back really far, I, I would think that I think my father probably had some hearing loss, but that was not something that I was really cognizant of per se. It was more like he wasn't paying attention. Uh, and I think at that time, there wasn't a great deal of attention either to hearing loss. So I really don't have it. I have tinnitus, which we may talk about later, but uh, but that's, you know, I don't have significant hearing loss at this point. You just noticed it was a common issue affecting older adults and their quality of life 
and that there was an opportunity, there was a gap in terms of what we were offering as health providers. It was very under-addressed in healthcare professions. And I think also what you mentioned about your father, that you, know, that you hadn't thought of it as hearing loss per se, right? right. That it was just right. his not paying attention. That's something that maybe a lot of people can relate to. And maybe that's what's happening with providers too, right? <laughs> yes. Is that it's being kind of waved off as like, oh, so common in older people. <laughs> and in exactly. fact, it's an important issue that needs to be addressed. Right. 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 Very sure. Yeah. So I think uh, a lot of people in the audience know that hearing loss is common, but maybe we can just briefly review um, some of the statistics and before we do that, how do you as an expert in this? Because at this point, you have, you have uh, researched this topic and wrote about it for, for years. But uh, as an academic, how do you define hearing loss? What, what I like to share often is that from a very technical standpoint, uh, hearing loss is defined by the results of an audiogram. That's the assessment that you get when you go to see an audiologist. And during that exam, the audiologist will assess whether uh, the individual hears specific sounds or frequencies or tones at different levels of loudness. Uh, so as we get older, we tend to become less able to hear the high frequency sounds. And you can think of high frequency sounds as those produced by a siren or an alarm, while low frequency tones are produced by say a drum. Why is loss of frequencies, uh, the frequency sounds so important? Well, many of the consonants, things like the S's and the F's and the Th's and the sh's they tend to be more high frequency, while vowels, A-E-I-O-U, those kinds of things tend to be more low frequency. But consonants, what's very interesting, the consonants help us make words understandable, while low frequency sounds contribute more to audibility. So when consonants aren't heard clearly, we may feel we hear because something, we are hearing something, but we're not getting all the information. The, the, so people are, think that other people are mumbling or we end up misinterpreting the word because we only get parts of it. And this is really an important point because often hearing loss is considered something like a decrease in sound, but hearing loss is not like wearing earplugs. It's not just a decrease in sound, it's a distortion of sounds. And that's why many individuals will say they can hear, but people are, they complain that people are mumbling or they aren't speaking clearly and they have trouble with accents. It's also why the audiogram really doesn't fully capture the experience of hearing loss. It just identifies what frequencies are not being perceived and how loud the sound has to be at a specific frequency to be able for one to hear it. Now, as an aside, you can actually Google what's called the speech banana to get an idea, a visual showing of where those various sounds fall. Oh, really? Frequencies, yes. It's kind of interesting. Oh, well, we'll find it and link to it in the show notes. So there's a speech banana that kind of shows what is the frequency of certain common speech sounds. Right, right. Especially since there's a sort of a part of the audiogram that is most pertinent, if you will, to, to talking to people, to audibility and to communication. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. And they make it yellow. So mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, banana. <laughs> yeah, sounds fun. Well, so, I mean, so it sounds like what you're getting at is that what happens to people is, as you said, it's not just a muffling or like they're wearing earplugs. It's because it's certain frequencies that are affected. It, it ends up distorting the sound in a way that often makes it hard to understand speech. Correct. Correct. So when the, the person who's affected says, I can hear, they're in a way right, because they're still mm -hmm. hearing plenty. 
They're just missing certain key parts that allow them to distinguish things clearly. Right. And what also happens because of the high frequency, the things that they also miss, which are really important to be aware of. Is women's are, voices shouting. <laughs> yes, you're right. Women's voices, uh, children's voices, grandchildren's voices, but also important safety things mm. like sirens and alarms and fire alarms. So one of the things people should be aware of if they have hearing loss is considering different, they, they make different kinds of alarms and equipment for your home if you need it in order to alert you if you are missing those high frequencies. That's so interesting. Uh, different alarms can be bought at lower frequencies. Yes. Oh, yeah, they're, and they have other things for it depending on how, how significant your hearing loss is. And I've often uh, heard experts mention that since hearing loss is, is actually really a distortion, that shouting you know, or speaking louder does not necessarily help. No, no, you sort of make the distortion louder. So, you know, you may want to talk a little bit louder, but in general, shouting does not help. Well, we'll talk more about what, what does help in part two, but very briefly, what about speaking more slowly? Does that, that help? That can help, yes. I mean, certainly facing the person will talk more, I think, about strategies that you can use in terms of communication. But speaking is slightly, not, not distorting it so that it sounds unnatural, but at least speaking clearly, enunciating, and facing the person. Uh, so you're, you are speaking clearly, obviously not putting your hand in front of your mouth so the person can see your lips and stuff like that. There's relatively simple strategies that can help individuals at least hear somewhat better if we use them effectively. Yeah. And I would think that speaking more slowly, if nothing else, just gives the person more time to decipher what True. somebody is saying, because part of, of hearing is, I mean, I know I feel that way when I'm listening to somebody who has a very strong, unfamiliar accent, or if I'm listening, you know, to something on a, a bad loudspeaker that has distorted it is, is I become aware that I have to actually like mentally kind of decipher. And it takes a lot of effort. Right. So having a little bit more time for that can probably help as well. So is there a certain like threshold for how much the frequency has to be impaired to qualify as hearing loss? They usually look for adults over 25 decibels, which decibel is the, a, a form of loudness, if you will. Uh, some people go higher than that for 40, but it ranges from very what they call mild hearing loss, which is around 25 to 4, and then 40 becomes more moderate. And then as you get higher, you get into the more severe range. But the issue is that number often is a um, an average of what you can hear at different levels across several frequencies. So it doesn't always give us a good idea of the experience that you're having in terms of real life. And so knowing the situations that are most difficult for you becomes an issue. But yes, when you're looking at an audiogram or something where you've had your hearing tested, um, they will talk about a pure tone average. And that's these the frequencies across a certain number of frequencies and they average the loudness, if you will. And it comes up with something like 25 or 40 or higher. Now that we've talked about how hearing loss is defined, uh, again, we know it's common, but how common is it? Can you give us about a, a range or a statistic? Well, there's various numbers that have been thrown around in terms of total numbers. Uh, I think it, the exact number varies depending on whether you're defining it by self-reported or by objective audiograms. But in general, 
it does certainly become increasingly common as we get older and hearing loss serious enough to make understanding of speech more difficult affects nearly two thirds of persons age 70 and over. Wow, that's really quite a, quite a lot. And then um, do we know if it's becoming more or less common than it has been historically? I ask because we know some other chronic illnesses and impairments have been going up or down in prevalence you know, right. over the decades. Any, any information on how hearing loss frequency might be changing? Again, again, the research differs a little bit on how they define and whether they look at high frequency hearing loss or what often would have been defined as sort of hearing loss using the frequencies that are more audible to persons who are, are younger. But if you use high frequency hearing loss, uh, it, it seems to be getting more common. There's some data that came out and said it maybe it wasn't, but there's more data recently that has focused concern on younger adults, especially uh, and there's concern about people running around with earbuds in and so forth. That said, I think some of the places where people were exposed to noise before that put them at higher risk have become quieter because of standards. And that's, I think, been helpful. But in general, I think it seems to be going up in, in younger individuals. So we're very concerned about that. Mm-hmm, right. So on one hand, we might have more exposures or triggers that put people at risk earlier in life. And then I imagine that to a certain degree, just you know, with people living longer, the longer you live, probably the, the risk you know, probably goes up as you get older, right? Yes, yes. Unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. And then is there such a thing as kind of normal age-related decline in hearing abilities, just the way a lot of other physical function decline somewhat as people get older and some, you know, some amount of it is considered normal? Do, do we have something analogous when it comes to hearing? Whether you wish to call it sort of what, what I might say is normal or usual, our hearing acuity does decline with age, but how severe it gets and when one starts to have real problems with hearing is affected by a lot of other issues. And some people really do age to fairly high ages without significant hearing loss. So we know that there are other things that do affect it. Um, but yes, there seems to be a normal or our usual decline in our hearing acuity across time. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly when it gets to the point where you're having difficulty understanding speech right. of people who are in your social environment or work environment, that sounds like that, you know, no one wants to call that normal, even if it is uh, extremely common as people get older. Right, right. Right. Well, I want to talk more about, you know, what puts people at risk and what causes it in a moment, but... Before we get get into that, because I feel like that gets a little bit into the evaluation, maybe we can just review why it's such an important issue to address. Because beyond the fact that, you know, people might be saying what and having some difficulty, you know, discerning sounds, you know, why are we so concerned about it as health professionals and as a public health issue? Well, of course, I, I admit my bias in this regard. But in truth, data are increasingly supporting why this is such a major health-related issue. Uh, Hearing loss is related to so many things in terms of isolation because you really can't participate in the kinds of activities you might want to. Therefore, it's also related to depression. Uh, It's certainly related to difficulties with our family and social relationships because people can't talk to us easily and quite a bit of effort. And increasingly, we're also documenting its effect on our cognitive capacity, which probably makes some sense in that just like a muscle or anything else, it it needs use. 
And so when the uh, neurons or nerves or something are not getting the stimulation, um, they're basically going to say, well, I might as well do something else. I mean, they, they do not stay as um, acute as they would if they got the stimulation. So that makes a difference. And I, I think that the uh, risk factors for problems for things like Delirium is more common if one becomes acutely ill and has hearing loss or has surgery and also falls have been related to uh, hearing loss, possibly because uh, the hearing and the vestibular or the balance component of the ear are so closely aligned. And so there may be some factors there, but also because you're getting miscues from your environment. Hearing, loss, hearing can be so important to grounding us in where we are in space. So without that, we tend to have potentially more problems with uh, falls. Right, right. So definitely linked to kind of what we call, you know, worrisome health outcomes in a yeah. way, right? Falls, losing mental capacities, higher risk of delirium, that worse than usual confusion that people develop often in the hospital or when they're very, very sick. And then you mentioned also just like the social aspects that it's associated with isolation, depression. And you also mentioned it affects families, right? Oh, Yes. Yes, we if really and truly the hearing loss is a family issue and also I think a society issue because it's not just individuals who are affected by it, but it's relationships. Uh, trying to hear when you have hearing loss takes a lot of effort, unfortunately. It's very tiring, but it also is difficult for persons who don't have hearing loss that are interacting to try and use the strategies that they might be more effective in terms of communication, remembering to use those strategies. And they get frustrated because they have to repeat all the time or people might miss messages like, gee, I don't remember hearing you say that we had to go so-and-so at such and such because they really didn't hear it or they misunderstood the timing. You know, my, my, my husband says that to me, and oh. <laughs> but maybe actually I should consider hearing loss. <laughs> <laughs> But still, yes, it, yeah. it can make a difference. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's important to bring this up because I, I, I feel like that, you know, on one hand, you know, as professionals, like certainly professionals who study it as you do and from a public health perspective, there's all this evidence that it's such a significant, important issue to address. And uh, I think you've probably experienced this too, but I think as, as, um, healthcare providers. I mean, yes, healthcare providers don't pay enough attention, but we've also all had the experience of older people kind of blowing it off, right? Yeah. When yeah. their family bring it up or when their provider bring it up, whereas there are some health issues that seem to motivate people to try to get help, that seems to be one of those where often, you know, if the provider is attuned to it being important, you're often there trying to persuade the older person to, to address it. Right. I think it's a very hard issue. I mean, we, we do find that people end up not talking to each other as much and people not being aware that their partners may not be sharing information because they just feel it takes too much time or it's too much effort. Uh, I think in terms of people not appreciating, there is unfortunately, uh, there remains a, a significant stigma around hearing loss and wearing hearing aids. I find that very sad because I think that one people who address their hearing loss are really, I think, letting other people know that they're interested in what the person's going to be saying and they want to stay engaged. It does, well, we'll get into, I think, the, the issue. It does take some work to work with hearing aids, but 
um, I think the benefits in most cases are just so valuable for individuals. Uh, and it's, as I say, they, they become so isolated, which is kind of sad to see when it's not necessarily necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to get more into the hearing aids and things that can be done in part two. But just briefly, this is this is actually one of those problems where especially if it's addressed earlier, uh, it is possible to intervene and help people hear better normally. Yes. I mean, I, I think there's more data that suggests, I mean, I think if you can continue to stimulate uh, the input to your because uh, we really hear in our brain, I mean, in the auditory center in the brain, but it has to, it can't make sense of something if it's not getting adequate signals. So it needs the peripheral part of your hearing to send it adequate signals. And that's what we want to correct. We want to make those signals as clear as we possibly can. And there are not a lot, but some data that certainly show that if you do it early enough, your speech recognition may stay better. Um, then if you wait too long, because the brain again gets used to not hearing sounds and it becomes harder then to go back to hearing different sounds and making sense of them. Right, right. And, uh, and we'll talk more about it in part two, but you, you mentioned just that, you know, hearing aids take, take some, some time to, to get used to and to work with for them to work well with you. And I think the other thing about doing it earlier is that I see people often addressing this like, or families, you know, trying to address this when the quite late, when a person has already become quite frail or has a lot of health problems or has developed dementia. And that's just a time when they have less energy and bandwidth, right? True. To engage yes. in that process of, <laughs> right. you know, of, of learning to use these aids. So, um, so I want to highlight that because I, I, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of wave it off when they're in their 60s and 70s. And, uh, and it sounds like that's really a, a missed opportunity because if they have hearing loss, it sounds like it's better to address it earlier before it can have all these other health impacts, well, impacts on their health and on their, you know, families and social life and, and on that part inside the brain, as you were saying, that is involved in processing what comes in through your ears. And if you don't give it enough to process or the right things, it, it will, you know, if you don't use it, you start to lose it. Right. Um, so maybe actually you can, um, now talk a little bit about what exactly causes it. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that it's a change in being able to discern certain frequencies, but there's a, there's a term that, that I'm sure you're familiar with that most of it is called sensory neural hearing loss. Can you explain a little bit what, what that means and what we think you know, causes most of this, I'll call it garden variety, age-related hearing loss in older adults? Well, just in, in terms of sensory neuro, that's sort of a, just a big term for the fact that it affects the small, tiny, little, uh, very, very wonderful, uh, de wonderfully designed hearing sensors in the inner ear. Uh, they're tiny little hair cells, and there's uh, several different kinds, but basically they hear, they, they respond to those different frequencies uh, that we have in our environment. That part of the sensory organ um, that then transmits to the nerves and the nerves then transmit that data to the brain. So sensory neural basically means it's the inner ear and the nerves that serve hearing um, that are affected. And that's different from what is sometimes called conductive hearing loss, which can be caused by changes in the very tiny little bones in the ear. Uh, they can become stiff and not transmit sound very well. Or, of course, the more common thing is 
uh, wax, unfortunately, it's what's ceramium, but it's wax that gets in the way. Um, that's usually, uh, thankfully, a fairly easy correction, but that is more of a conductive loss because the sound is not even getting to the inner ear to be sensed. So, and then that, uh, you said the tiny bones in the ear can stiffen. Is, is that very common? Is that a factor in the hearing loss of most older adults, or is that a, a sort of less common cause? That's, that's a less, I'm sure that there's some changes in the, the uh, little ossicles, as they call them, the mm -hmm. little bones. They're the tiniest bones in our body. They're wonderfully designed, but they do probably become a little bit stiffer. But if you have more of a pathological condition, like autosclerosis or some other kinds of conditions like that, where there really is a change and they become very stiff and more immobile, then there's a different kind of intervention that you might need to have to have that corrected. Mm -hmm. And when they do the, you know, in the audiology visit, they can discern between these two? Oh, yes. Yes. Actually, the practitioners can discern with some tests too that between a conductive and a sensory neuro hearing loss. Just the tuning fork thing. Yeah, the tuning fork yeah. type of thing. It's kind of a, my sort of a gross assessment, but you, you can get an idea that there is um, a conductive loss versus uh, more, but more common is the sensory neural for most of our hearing loss with aging. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly think uh, I'm sometimes surprised by how um, I think often the primary care providers aren't even looking in the ears. And, and even though I think there's, you know, often the sensory neural hearing loss going on, if they also have wax and you can take that out <laughs> and improve yes. things a little bit, right. you know, right. why not? Yeah. Low hanging fruits, you know, aside from, you know, getting older, what, you know, have we identified specific factors that can cause these inner ear sensory cells to stop working as well? Oh, yes. Uh, well, th there's big thing is really noise. Um, that is a, a major factor. And of course, that's been, uh, there was always the debate about whether we had hearing loss, or it was always noise exposure. But uh, certainly noise exposure is a very negative thing for your hearing. There's more and more data that suggests that, uh, which is why I worry a lot about these uh, very noisy stadiums that feed back the noise and keep increasing the noise or going out to noisy places all the time and having these rock concerts or whatever. If you damage your ear, uh, sometimes you'll come away from that and you'll have some ringing in your ears or some other kinds of maybe decrease or change in your hearing, but it goes away or pretty much goes away. But what they've shown is that there can be ongoing damage at the cellular level after your what you think your hearing comes back. So there's probably some chronic damage going on. So noise exposure is a pretty significant issue. Uh, and I worry a lot about that for, for younger persons who might be exposed to a lot of noise and we like everything so noisy. Um, and we're, there, there are some regulations, at, at least at work, uh, but even there, if you're chronically exposed to noise, that can be difficult. And of course, sudden noise, very loud blasts, and that unfortunately is one of the problems with many of our veterans who have been exposed to blast uh, injuries, and those cause permanent damage to their hearing often. It's one of the most common causes of hearing loss in veterans, uh, which is really unfortunate. The other things that can cause uh, damage is exposure to autotoxic kinds of agents, meaning autotoxic means toxic to the ear. Uh, but 
things like chemotherapeutics, if we're exposed to those, or certain antibiotics that we have for um, uh, illnesses, especially if you're taking some things more chronically or you have multiple uh, types of episodes, and also the non-steroidals, the kinds of things that we get over the counter to treat pain. Um, not acetaminophen so much, although there's some data that suggests maybe it has some effect, but more of the non-steroidal kinds of things like Advil, I don't like to put names on them, but all of those types of medications have a risk for, for um, autotoxicity. We just don't have as much data about taking some of these medications. They've never thought that taking them at low doses were necessarily negative, but we don't have a lot of data on the fact that it's if you take them long-term. I just worked with a doctoral student who did show that long-term, it seemed like these medications were problematic for long-term hearing loss, but uh, we need more data on that. But th if you can minimize exposure to autotoxic agents, and unfortunately at work, some people are exposed to various kinds of autotoxic fumes. And so that's a, an issue for individuals. And it's another, I guess you would say that's a thing that uh, practitioners should check for once in a while is what type of exposure the person has had in terms of their work or or if you happen to be a hunter or you happen to do other kinds of things that you're exposed to loud noises across time that can impact your hearing. And then do you know is there a benefit in identifying that sort of earlier when people are in their 40s and 50s and do we know if then changing their lifestyle I guess might affect what happens afterwards? You know, I sort of want, because I know for many, you know, chronic conditions or impairments, we often try to notice it earlier so that we can kind of change the trajectory, right? Right. I, I don't think there's enough data that says you can't probably reverse what's started, but certainly if you know that you've been exposed to some things, minimizing, just like minimizing your exposure to noise is certainly critical. And wearing earplugs, wearing protective devices when you're in noisy locations, I wear earplugs all the time when I'm at the fitness center because the, all those machines seem mm -hmm. so noisy to me. Right. Um, so I'm a little paranoid about wearing ear protection, if you will. Uh, but I think ear protection is really important. And if you're in an environment where you are exposed to uh, toxic agents, I think there are probably regulations around some of that. I'm not as familiar with some of the OSHA regulations, but we certainly, um, I think there has been an effort to make sure that the work environment is a little more protected from those kinds of agents. But if people work out in the fields, if they're exposed to toxic agents because they do farm work or other kinds of things, um, that can be a problem. So because some of those um, toxic exposures, which, which I think of as affecting people's, you know, breathing. Yeah, they do. It looks like they can also affect their hearing. Yes, mm -hmm, unfortunately. Right. And then uh, I guess some acute illnesses also, but it seems like that's more common for younger children. Yes, unless it's uh, something that affects the central nervous system as we get older. Uh, and, and I say that I think the acute illness for older adults, what affects the hearing is probably the antibiotics and the, the therapeutics that we're exposed to, to treat it. Mm -hmm. uh, for younger children, unfortunately, certain kinds of acute illnesses like measles and those kinds of things are one of the reasons for, for hearing loss as well. So we want to minimize the kinds of chronic illnesses or the 
acute as well as chronic. Yet another reason to vaccinate. <laughs> yes, right. 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 Yeah, you don't, it's it's not benign. Yeah. It's benign no, there. no, it's not. Um, okay, well, let's talk now a bit about how hearing loss should be screened for or otherwise detected. Now, so I know that some of your research has been on and you alluded to this before that that primary care providers are often under uh, assessing hearing loss, okay. under addressing it. Right? They're overlooking it. How common is it for it to be overlooked, and why do you think this is? The data suggests, and it, it does vary, but be only between twenty and thirty percent of primary care practitioners tend to screen for hearing loss. And what's the recommendation for screening right now? Is there a screening recommendation? The screening, I, unfortunately, the Preventative Services Task Force, in their last review, they're undergoing another one, did not come out in support of the benefit of screening for uh, persons who didn't complain about hearing loss, but that was because they didn't have enough data. And they are very data-based. They, they said there was no, not, there was no data that says there was harmful but they just said that there wasn't enough data to say, oh yes, there's a great benefit. And part of it was that we didn't have the right data. I think now because we're seeing more and more in terms of the effects of hearing loss that I think it will support, and I'm hoping that their new criteria will say that the benefits may be for early identification because we wanna prevent some of these negative outcomes uh, and that those data will be useful in going forward uh, with that. But I think the general things for some of the more other practice or things really should be screening at, at some routine level, for especially for older adults or people who are at risk for hearing loss, whether it's genetic or noise exposure or anything else, or just the fact that they're over the age of 60 and we know that it becomes so much more common. So we screened, you know, yearly, just like we might do for any other condition that is of concern. I, I think it would be really helpful. It would also validate this. I think the, the other thing for screening for me is that if a health professional tells someone, you know, you probably looks like you may have some hearing loss. This is a really important health issue. I think it would be really helpful for you to get assessed and see if we can get this treated. I think it's more effective than, um, it's unfortunate, but true, than having your partner or someone else just say, by the way, go get your hearing tested. Um, so I think screening is positive from that standpoint. And I think it might help with the stigma because it's, again, a health issue. Uh, and we want to minimize the health effects. Yeah. And also, if it were, if there were just more people using hearing aids, then I think people would feel less singled out by it or, right. or something. It also occurs to me that, um, you know, I think we're, what we're trying to move towards in, in geriatrics, as, as I think you're aware, is this idea of regularly assessing function, right? Yes. Not just for diseases, but asking people if they're having any difficulty doing certain key things that are necessary for living your life, including, you know, moving around easily, seeing hearing, right. You know, right. thinking, right. <laughs> memory. And so I know that, you know, some of the, uh, with the Medicare annual wellness visit, not that everybody does it actually, because I think it's, it doesn't get, you know, I think it doesn't fit in very easily still to the workflow for um, providers. But, you know, I think the idea is that we would move towards these assessments where you ask if people are having difficulty 
with these common things and that it's not so much checking for, for disease, but that hearing certainly falls within that, right? And that would be another way that we could maybe notice. And, you know, again, with the idea of being prevention and helping people maintain the maximum independence and quality of life and ability to participate in things. Yes, what, what saddened me was how much in terms of one of the studies we were doing that people had sort of almost said, oh, I've heard enough, I, that they, they almost disengage. And I don't know if it's partly because of the effort of trying to change behaviors or because one of the issues we see with hearing loss is it really does come on slowly. And so people just are not aware of what they're missing. And I certainly have had people to sort of share after they've gotten hearing aids and say, oh, I can hear the birds. You know, they suddenly hear things they just haven't been hearing for ages. Right. So there, when you say people say I've heard enough, you mean patients or older adults, not the providers. No, this is the older adult. Or, mm. You know, unfortunately, they become so, I think, inured to the fact that they, they don't go to the effort. And I, I find that sad, but I think it is something we need to work on in terms of the fact that it's a family issue. And it's possible that if we could have individuals see how important it is for other people in their lives to be able to communicate with them. And as one person said after they got their hearing as well, you know, and my spouse loves these too, meaning, you know, because all of a sudden their relationship changed and in a way that was more, it, it wasn't, there wasn't so much tension. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know part, you know, one of the, um, part of the work you've done on this was that you, you helped develop and then test a brochure to give to people to help them encourage to get this address. And I want you to tell us about, um, that, but maybe really, uh, briefly before we go into that, just, we were talking about screening. Can we just briefly review for the audience, you know, how should hearing loss be screened or detected? And then, you know, once it's detected by screening or preliminary report, you know, from family, the older person or whatever is a reasonable screen to do in primary care, what would be the next steps? If, if primary care practitioners, I mean, my, my goal is obviously to, to be able to screen in a way that we identify people with early loss. But if the practitioner even just asked the question, do you have difficulty hearing or asked if they had problems with the phone or in talking, or if they said what a great deal, or if somebody else told them that they had uh, problems with hearing, those those kinds of things, or they could use a questionnaire in a, a, a room or something and just have them check it before they came into the clinic and then look at this. But ideally, we would include something that would be more objective because people often deny they have a hearing loss. So if the practitioner would use say a finger rub test or some other modality just to see if and it's more standardized because it doesn't mean rubbing your fingers right next to the person's ear because if they can't hear that where they really have hearing loss. But I was going to say uh, it's, it's not even particularly <laughs> high frequency, right? No, but if they use it, the, we have a standardized sort of approach or um, I know some people used to use a whisper test. You have to do that sort of a standardized way. But And there are now more and more apps that are coming out where you can actually screen with, with sounds um, that, uh, the, although a lot of those are not yet that standardized as such, but there are more mechanisms that I think are very simple to use that would allow someone to more objectively define the fact that the person has a hearing loss. And 
if they did that in primary care, then they can be referred to get more thorough care going forward. Mm -hmm. So let's say that they get a very sort of simple, practical screen, like, do you have any trouble hearing? Does anyone in your family say you have trouble right. hearing? <laughs> right. Any trouble on the phone or with your grandchildren? And, and they say yes. So uh, then what should ideally happen next? One would hope that you would be referred for a more thorough assessment. And that would be with, I think, the, the recommendation that you get assessed so that you can confirm the type of hearing loss that you have and uh, you know, the, the uh, level of hearing loss that you have. Uh, and I think that would, again, as I, I think, um, provide a reinforcement, if you will, for the person to understand why it's so important to, um, to hear, to emphasize that it is. Then they would be referred probably to an, an audiologist, health, hopefully an audiologist, but there are different types of persons who can fit hearing aids or whatever, but the audiologist does a, the uh, full exam on the person. So that would really be the next step. Yeah. So, so check for earwax. <laughs> yes. Check for earwax. Sure. And even if there is earwax, there is still, especially I guess if it's been going on for a while, probably still have age-related hearing loss and then audiology. And now remind me, does Medicare cover audiology exams? I know they don't cover hearing aids. No, they, they will. If you get referred uh, right now, this is a big controversy going on, but if you get referred um, you can get the test as a diagnostic procedure. And you can actually go to your audiologist, but you have to sign a big waiver that says, I, I agree to not being seen and all this other kind of stuff. But they will not cover. If you get referred, you get the diagnostic screening. But once you know you have hearing loss, they, don't, they won't cover other, other things. There are some... Uh, exceptions to that, there are some Medicare Advantage programs, and that's where you know you sign over your Medicare to a program that specifically can they can add more things. Medicare your, HMOs, yes, mm -hmm. sort of thing, and and they may add a benefit, but in general, Medicare does not. There is a there's actually if you look at the Medicare law, there's a statutory clause in there that says we won't you, you can't cover hearing health care or in fact, dental or unfortunately um, eyeglasses and stuff like that. That's so, crazy. Why, why is that? <laughs> Do we know? Well, yeah. The, the reason is when you know, Medicare came into being in 1965, uh, it wasn't designed to do what it's doing now. It really was much more acute care focused. So it made sense probably. Plus it was very much a compromise because a lot of the physicians and others didn't want it. So there were a lot of things that had to be modified to allow it to come into fruition. So we probably are lucky to have what we have. But it does mean, unfortunately, that in order to change Medicare coverage, we have to change the law. Mm -hmm. Right. And there are certainly efforts. We've been moving and trying to get that. And, and I think we're inching that way. So, so for the time being, the audiology exam, which is necessary to kind of find out which frequencies are impaired and how severe it is. And is really, it sounds like an important step, you know, in terms of then determining what kind of treatment or management or adaptation could be offered. That audiology exam is not covered unless the health provider makes a referral for a diagnostic exam. Right. So I guess if, if people want this 
worked up, they need to be careful about that and be sure that their, their doctor or provider refers them. Right. Okay. Or they need to see if their Medicare HMO, if right. they are in one, will, uh, will cover. cover it. Um, so that's another actual, like, real barrier, <laughs> it right. sounds like. It is. Right? It is. People are, yeah. you know, potentially worried that they'll have to pay. And then what happens during the audiology exam? You mentioned earlier, but they, they, I guess they play different frequencies, right? Yeah. If, if you go for a full assessment, the audiologist should do, first, of course, they, they tend to do a really good ear evaluation and, and test for how well one hears or how loud the sound has to be to hear at a range of frequencies. So you, that's what creates, if you will, they play these pure tones, and that's just a, a, a frequency at different levels of loudness to see if you can hear it. Um, and that creates an audiogram, but that's only part of what should be really done. The other thing that, that needs to be done is they will test, they should test uh, whether you can hear different words. So they'll give you a word and you have to repeat it. And they'll see how many of those that you are correct in terms of what you, um, what you hear. And then the other piece that is really helpful to do that should be done is a test of what's either called uh, speech and noise or words and noise. And what that is, is the, you hear again, either words, so the, you hear the audiologist or someone talking, saying specific words that are designed for a, a specific way to identify the types of loss that you might have. And then they add sounds, background sounds. And you have to then identify in the midst of the noise, in midst of the sounds, usually a language babble of some sort, you have to identify the sounds. So you have to say, oh, that's word or that's whatever it is and see if you hint. Or speech and noise is maybe saying a statement, uh, a specific sentence. And they again add noise to the background to see how well you do. The reason that can be so valuable is that that's a little more realistic. It's what you might see outside the audiologist because just sitting there and being able to hear a sound is not very realistic. It's not what you experience when you're talking to someone or in an environment with a lot of other people talking. So if you do the speech and noise or the words and noise, you're getting a sense of whether the person really can understand stuff. And what's interesting about those statements is that in most cases, we're helped by cues. In other words, you know what the topic is. So your brain can help you understand what someone's saying. So the topic can be helpful. But in the audiologist, when they use speech and noise or words and noise, you have no context. So it really does give you a better idea of whether you actually can hear in the midst of all this sound or whether you don't do very well doing that. So that should really be done as well. Great. That is so helpful. Well, we're going to be wrapping up part one. I guess in closing, you know, we mentioned before, it's come up a few times that often it's not just that the health providers themselves are for a variety of reasons not likely to screen or ask or notice, but that often older adults themselves seem uninterested in pursuing this, uh, they're either not aware, you were saying, that it's really an issue. Right. Or they, they I, I guess, might have the perception that it's going to be hard to fix. 
So can you give some tips for the audience on how they can help a, an older person get this address? Because I think that comes up a lot, you know, as a barrier. I really do think you need to bring it up to the audiologist. And one of the things I'm really... Or the health provider, you mean? The health provider. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. The health provider. Yeah. Uh, and one of my emphasis is trying to assure that the healthcare provider pays attention because they sometimes just sort of say, oh, it's no problem. Or my wife says, I, he doesn't, she doesn't hear, you know, I don't hear loss or something. So they discount what's going on. I think they really need to identify and get if they have hearing loss or someone tells them to get referral to be able to do that. And I, I think that the it's going to be a struggle until practitioners are willing to sort of state to the individual how important the healthcare is. And the, I think our, our family members want to share with individuals that they want to hear with the individuals. They would really appreciate being able to work and, and understand people and do things. So they can facilitate um, individual, it's not a cure-all. We'll go into that later, but they really need to at least experience that this is a family issue and they would value the individuals getting a hearing assessment and seeing if it can't be uh, helped a bit by various kinds of intervention. Right, right. And then you actually helped develop and study a brochure, right? So yes. I want to I want to share your brochure in the show notes for this before we wrap up this episode. We'll share in the show notes for the next one too. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the brochure and and what you found out in studying it. We included, we tried to see what would happen if we added the brochure in addition to screening. And the brochure is very, very simple. We wanted to make sure that the person uh, understood why they had possible hearing loss, why they thought they could hear when they actually didn't. It's set up in terms of questions around what is age-related hearing loss? Why do I think I can hear when I don't? And then we give the answers to the, to the questions. But we, add, we added issues a little bit around what to expect when you go to an audiologist, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But those kinds of issues and resources that they might have, and that there are other kinds of things that are possibly available if they choose not to get a hearing a lot, hearing aids at, at a particular time, that they're, they're not ready for that or whatever in terms of communication strategies. Very brief because we couldn't have lots of it. But part of it was to have people understand issues around hearing loss and what they can do about it uh, and that there are different kinds of resources. Thinking that if you start down that path of trying to do something constructive, you will continue because you will be acknowledging the fact that you're having some trouble hearing and therefore it's important to take care of it. Right. Yeah. No, I'm looking at the brochure right now and and I love it. I mean, you've included things like uh, what is age-related hearing loss? Why do I still feel I hear but often don't understand what is said? So that gets at what you were explaining to us earlier. Isn't hearing loss just my problem if I'm okay with what I hear? Why are hearing aids expensive? I heard they don't work. We're going to we're going to have you debunk that <laughs> belief right. in part 2 and also, you know, what are the first steps in getting assessed. So I think this is a, a fantastic resource. So in your study, did it did it improve outcomes compared to just screening? What did you find out? Yes, we we are finding uh we didn't have as big an 
and or a number of re it was a lot of issues that we ran into. But the data that we support that we show seems to suggest that hearing getting that brochure does make a difference in terms of individuals going and getting their hearing assessed. And they really did like the brochure. And they also really liked to have someone review it because that made them much more aware of the, the brochure and, and they didn't just talk, toss it out, that they really read it. So I, we were hopeful that we make sure that the person really reads it. Oh, good. Well, great. Well, I'm excited to post it, um, a link to it in the, the show notes, because I think this can be a great resource for listeners, something that they might be able to, you know, share with a family member, right? And bring right. in to the health provider as they advocate to get this important issue addressed. So to wrap up this part one, maybe we can just recap the key points that you have made. So hearing loss is very common and is actually, you know, important and a serious issue, even though uh, we know that many older adults will kind of wave it off, either because it's stigmatized to use a hearing aid, or they may have misconceptions about it, uh, which you are going to clear up for us in in part two. But but as you were explaining, it's really important to one's social life, to one's quality of life, and also to one's health. Yes. Um, and that we have data showing that it's linked to a higher risk of falls, of developing worse memory and thinking problems, of developing delirium. So common and really important to address. And... It sounds like your research also shows that we can't count on regular health providers to bring it up and check for it. Not At yet. Least, not yet. We're working on that. So in the yeah. meantime, I guess families should know that it might be necessary for them to do a little extra advocating and asking for assistance addressing this. Um, and then you also mentioned that the uh, you know once a, a screening test has confirmed that there's a, a problem. The next step is to get an, an audiology evaluation and that especially if people don't have a Medicare HMO that covers it, they want to be sure to ask for a referral right? so that it'll be covered. And I guess last but not least, your amazing brochure is a resource that we're going to be sharing with the audience because it's a wonderful educational resource to help older adults and potentially their families and providers kind of understand these, these essential truths about right. hearing loss and why it's important to address it. Would you add anything else to finish off this part one? Probably not. That's quite a bit. Yeah, well, you covered quite a bit. Okay, well, <laughs> Meg, thank you. Thank you. For covering this and for everybody uh, listening, we'll, we'll have resources in the show notes and then please come back for the following episode because in part two, we are going to be covering what can be done and what you need to know about hearing aids and other options to help older adults hear better. Sounds good. Thank you so much. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.